Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Marcus Brain. And Marcus, it's lovely to see you and great to reconnect. We've always been in touch, but we've not seen one another for really a long time. True. I really appreciate your taking the time today. So the question that's on my mind is one that I guess I always start with, <coughs> pardon me, folks, in various forms, which is, could you share with us what is preoccupying you, troubling you, dynamizing you, interesting you here and now? Yes, thank you, Toby, and thanks for having me here. It's great to see you too. What's dynamizing me is, I suppose, the uh, to play on words a little bit, the dynamite of our <laughs> contemporary conjuncture. I live in Boston. I teach at Boston College. I am a humble servant of the Jesuit Catholic tradition <laughs> as right. far as it goes, even though I'm uh, Protestant in formation and in upbringing. But the things that I find, or the thing that I find most dynamic for us in cultural studies is this very curious but overpowering sense that technology and its intersection with culture and politics is radically changing everything and potentially in the longer view for the better. But at the moment we're going into and continue to go into a fairly uh, precipitous, unfavorable cultural scene, by which I mean we're going, we're passing through a moment where we're seeing a really troubling emergence of incredibly diffuse interests, ideological interests that are expressing themselves politically in ways that for the sort of liberal left Marxist tradition doesn't quite gel with where we'd like to be. Now, you and I are old enough to remember the rather spectacular moment of, of um, if you like, postmodernism. You remember this as a time when everything fragmented and due to microprocessing of computers, I don't have my little uh, smartphone, so-called smartphone with me now, but, you know, the great the great prescient predictions from the Frenchmen were, and they're all men pretty well, was that this fragmentation would produce a remarkable emergence of power that would be largely connected to the people, to people, and it would change the relationship of very large numbers of people with the power structures of society, particularly in the West. It wasn't about a single political party taking formation. But it was about this fragmentary thing. And I think, and then the last time we spoke was quite a while ago, not long after my book, Uprising, the Internet's Unintended Consequences came about. And so, at the risk of blowing my own trumpet, at that time I said the point about the Internet at the time, for particularly relevant to cultural studies, was that the entirety, almost the entirety of cultures that had otherwise been suppressed by, if you like, bourgeois media and communication formations was no longer suppressed because people were able to communicate in a disintermediated way directly with each other from whichever cultural position they found comfortable and they found purposeful for representing and then reproducing the lives and the values that they had. This was a, a huge ideological shift in the culture. Mm. 
I think Donald Trump proved me to prove me right, frankly, that that the way that the right has been able to organize in the United States has largely been through communication, through Fox and through various social media platforms. So I, I find or a long answer to your question, I find the particular conjuncture that we're in now of this sort of cultural media, uh, new ideological formations, very troubling because we have to get, we're going to have to go through this before we get to a better time for us in uh, progressive left Marxist communist socialist movements. Uh, and it, it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, it's continuing to be awkward. And, and, you know, the, the, the uh, indeterminacy of so much of this is is problematic for many of us. So I'm I'm, I'm interested in that. I, I try and talk to my students at Boston College. I, I teach undergraduates only. We don't have a graduate program, and I try and explain to them the kind of challenges that are going on that are going to impact them as eighteen and to twenty two year olds. Uh, more than it's going to impact us because this is uh, not a not a particularly pleasant formation. Uh, the other point that I want to make, just by way of sort of a, some introductory comments, is how many layers there are to this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the, there's the there's the very important shift in terms of values and the ideological considerations, uh, and the values that have become part of the of the uh, major. I'm reluctant to say mainstream, but the, the major kind of debates within society, uh, whether it's white nationalism, ultra-nationalism, America first nationalism, uh, anti, you know, racist, racist and um, anti-liberal uh, ideas, all that has been liberated, as, as it were, mm-hmm. through the communication technologies and uh you know, part of my research has been also, as you may remember, uh, from when I finished work as a full-time rock journalist and a film writer in the ni- in the early 1990s, was working with uh, William H. Melody or Bill Melody in, at Circuit in the Centre for International Research and in Information and Communication Technologies in Melbourne. And one of the things I learned there, which was very important and which I think you and I have in common, is the the importance indeed the determining significance of public policy that if you don't understand and if you know we as academics and as intellectuals don't understand the way that public policy can be influenced and how we can participate then then we're we're kind of playing with a second tier kind of sense of power that is we believe our teaching will have an impact well yes 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 but the structures of society are still very largely determined by what happens in those committee meetings and in in those um, policy determining sessions, and then by by elected governments, and understanding that and being part of that is is very important. No longer smoke filled rooms, but phone filled rooms. Absolutely, absolutely, and you can see it if you if you watch, you know, even even the even Security Council meetings of the United Nations, you can see half the delegates are on their phones. Um, Prof, one question: If I could take you back, back, back thirty years to probably when you first encountered email, thirty-five years perhaps, right? You probably first encountered yeah. email, and essentially it was a new epistolary culture that was like 
you know, brief notes and phone calls and phone messages, but written. Up to that point, much of the understanding in the global north, as we now term it, about media power was very centralised. It was about corporate ownership and state control. Do you see greater risks and greater ideological control now than you did then? Yes, unfortunately, the shift in in state control, the shift through surveillance is pretty both determining and totalizing. And it doesn't really matter what country you're in in the world. The totalization of all the technologies that we use for communication are subjected to all manner of uh, surveillance. And I'm not not a kind of uh, panic merchant. I know enough about moral panics to know that I don't want to participate in one. But um, I, I, I certainly agree that after Edward Snowden, and uh, his disclosures about surveillance, what we know has happened to Julian Assange, uh, may he be freed. Um, what we know about everything that's happened in the West uh, in relation to the relationship between the, the security apparatus of the state and its rela- and the state's relationship to the large technology digital platforms. There's no question that the battle has been lost in terms of uh, what might be a, a free and independent space. But, of course, we live in the contradiction, and here we are, here we are you and I. And we, uh, you know, we, are living, we are living out this dialectic, and we, we have to uh, recognise that much of what we, we, want to, we want to undertake in terms of the transformation of society and the collective interests of human emancipation have to be achieved with whatever tools are available to us, uh, knowing full well that the enemy is is uh, within us and amongst us. It's, it's just the way it is. A couple of the concepts that you've already mentioned of political economy and cultural studies and the importance of Marxism. I wondered if you could give an opinion on this critique I'm about to mount, not of what you've said, but of those formations. One, that much political economy is captured by a form of leftist functionalism in which there is no scope for organizing resistance, uh, uh, paradoxically or contradictorily, no room for conflict because control is so total and centralized and the political economy hasn't looked enough at worker experiences and worker efforts. And the second critique, which would be more of cultural studies, but on The other side, cultural studies has concentrated too much on such questions, on worker experiences, worker as construed broadly to include commercial audiences and so on, and not enough at structures of power. How would you respond to that stereotyping that I've just engaged in? Well, it's always useful to to have a fairly generalised critique of these fields and I, I would certainly agree with you that at both levels with some variation uh, there there have been significant limitations. I certainly would go so far as to say that part of the problem 
with political economy, let's just stick with that, has been that it has struggled to find a way out of the confines of the academy, that it, is, that it has really, particularly in its US formation, but I suspect elsewhere as well, it has not really known how to, how to move uh, into or onto the streets. It has not known how to move into public policy making and it has been uh, perhaps somewhat uh, too theoretical or, in fact, in I would say, uh, reluctant to name names, but in the case of someone like McChesney, uh, a kind of expression of uh, constant disappointment and anger at the powers that be without any kind of clarity about how to move forward in, a, in an organisational sense. And for those of us who came to the, who lived in the United States in the 90s in particular, I moved here in 1996 from Melbourne, I mean, there was a sense that there was just nothing happening. I mean, where were the people on the streets, you know, after Clinton removed many of the welfare benefits for uh, the impoverished and particularly for black and brown communities? You know, where was the protest uh, what, and what could be done over the invasion of, of Iraq or Afghanistan and all those sort of things? And I went to protest much. I went to things day after day after day. And, and you know, they were, they were kind of heartfelt, but they, they, there was no organisational structure uh, to them. And the political, economy could, the political economy could not and did not have the capacity to recognise the organisational requirements of... Uh, you know what needed to be done both on campus and off campus, and of course, again, we 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 have to recognise that post postmodernism in some ways contributed to this. There were so many fragments of the left, so many fragments of different readings of a political economy. Uh, and while I'm just on a political economy question, but this also has to do with cultural studies, and that is, we have to recognise that one of the significant limitations of our of our work as people on the left and as activists and people seeking, you know, a joint project of human emancipation uh, from from the vicissitudes and evils, if you like, of capitalism is that the system, the academic system in particular, is fundamentally a commitment to individual excellence and to individual promotion. And in that deep kind of systemic process of survival, that is keeping a job and getting tenure, uh, one is, if you like, permanently and constantly having to assert one's ego and to act as an individual. It is not a collective activity. And this is especially the case in, I guess, uh, private universities, but but all universities. And you, you rise and fall in terms of your career on the basis of what you do as an individual. And this means that you can rally and, and rant and rave as much as you like about political economy, but it's still about you. It's all about you. And so the individual, the focus on the individual has been the great success of the American cancer that has you know, permeated the idea of social movements and of mass movements, that the individuals, particularly within the universities, have to succeed and have to succeed individually as opposed to collectively. And there may be exceptions to this, but I think generally speaking, political economy was struggled has struggled with with that reality. Uh, our, our dear colleague Vincent Mosco or Vinnie Mosco passed away just a week ago. Uh, had a had a very good uh, framework for uh, evaluating 
political economy of communication, or PEC as I teach it, uh, understanding uh, the three key concepts of commodification, spatialization, and structuration, and how these features of the communication environment determined, if you like, where the power lay, and also the, the possibilities of power. But again, it didn't necessarily produce a, a formation, a if you like, a social or a new ideological formation. And the other point, of course, just before I get to cultural studies, the other point, of course, is that the powers that be, governments, policymakers, corporations, know the game. They know the game. I mean, look what the United States government has done over many years now. Let's go back to 30, 35 years. Uh, you know, since since Bush was in the White House and the, the various international and global excursions of the US military, as long as it's over there, not in the United States, but as long as it's somewhere else, <laughs> we'll do it and we'll, we'll go to war against them. Thankfully, not not yet. But And the fact of the matter is that there, there has been no capacity, no capacity to put a stop to some of these things. And, the, of course, the, the tragic example is of Biden's persistent and ongoing support of the Netanyahu government in Israel. I mean, what kind of barbarity is this? that even as the incredible amounts of death and destruction that are rained down on the Palestinian people continue, Biden will not say stop. He will not say we can pull the plug on this. And this has been, this is really just the continuation of a, of a US notion of a kind of supremacy of uh, liberal democracy and the freedom to do whatever they like to do. Now, that, of course, they've, they're coming to having to do a rethink with the emergence of multipolarity, but that's another topic, but it's an important topic. And so political economy has not has not been able to organise or think through the central question of how to organise when governments and corporations are completely inured, completely uninterested in hearing what we have to say. So that's, that's the political economy question. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. have small victories in terms of, let's say, uh, the development of or the idea that everybody should have access to the internet, that this should be an expression of uh, a democratic popular interest in knowledge. And of course, we should never lose sight of the fact that knowledge is what we, what we trade in, what we promote, and what we believe will set us free ultimately. Uh, and you know, if you don't know if you don't know anything, well then, why bother, right? So that's my view. And so the idea of actually having a space like the internet and like digital facilitation of knowledge is a wonderful thing that we should take advantage of. So on the cultural studies question, this is always a difficult one. I come from the Australian cultural studies tradition, if you like, where. You know, as I mentioned circuit earlier, you know, one of the things that we experienced, and this was the case in the United Kingdom, and, and I think it, it may still be the case, we'll see what happens with the, with the next Labor government in the UK, but there was a seamlessness, almost a seamlessness between what we as academics and, uh, and activists could contribute to government and how government would pay attention to and listen to us. And it wasn't just turning up to Parliament or something and and having a a few meetings uh, here and there uh, or something that's highly televised and theatrical as it is in the United States and not really bringing much change. 
uh, we, we were able to participate, write documents, write policy papers. Uh, I was employed as a consultant in developing the, the internet within the Victorian government, by the Victorian government. Uh, I, I used that to then work with the Mexican government and, for, and with telecommunication companies in the Mexican government. And to me, it was an expression of my of what I'd learned about cultural policy studies and cultural policy from my experience in Australia with the Victorian government and with the Australian government. So this sort of seamlessness of participation uh, is needs to be uh, distinguished from what happened in the in the United States, which is a very different system and a much larger system where cultural studies was a, a, a separate sphere, if you like, um, a civil society kind of sphere, and it still is, but has, uh, you know, it again, it struggles to find, it struggles to find its moment, but it has uh, one remarkable uh, success, if you like, and I think that that's worth noting, and, and that is that there are people engaged in cultural studies work in the diversification of knowledge from a number of subordinate positions who are busy working in universities and in facilitating the flow of knowledge about, you know, new ideas and better ideas for living and for sustaining not only themselves but their students. That, you know, let, let's be frank, that that kind of sense of the respect for the dignity of, of difference has to be seen as something that's valuable to cultural studies. But again, the move from that particular relatively small environment to the major influence that cultural studies can have uh, on the society uh, is pretty limited. Having said that, of course, you have to realise that, or we have to, we should realise that the kind of reactions that, that um, critical race theory or uh, LGBTQI rights has provoked, or even abortion rights, has provoked from what is it, 19 US states banning abortion outright or want to banning abortion. I mean, you know, these are, these are real reactions to successes that have been achieved, not only through cultural studies, but through social movements and through liberalising progressive movements over a long period of time. We shouldn't, we shouldn't deny our successes. We should build on them. But we also, again, going back to where I started, we also need to know that the forces that are arrayed against against the left and, uh, you know, vaguely progressive forces, like, you know, a woman's right to choose, these, these uh, powerful forces are extremely determined to undo many of the assumptions about what a liberal society looks like. And unfortunately, I have a, some insights to this because I was born and raised in a evangelical Protestant home. So I'm especially, um, especially sensitive to it. And I, I've managed to leave behind the anger and the frustration and the, the, if you like, the fear and try to make some sense of it. I hope that gets to some of those two questions, the political economy and the cultural studies one. Those are really great answers and they're going to help me in my class on Monday, though that wasn't the intention behind the quiz. <laughs> one other thing you mentioned in your early remarks en passant, Prof, was that you'd been a music journalist. I wondered if you could reflect on that because this is surely one of the key areas where the bourgeois media and alternative media have changed radically in terms of, in part, technology, but also the sorts of financial interests that now wish to own the bourgeois media and that for all the horror of a Murdoch or a 
New York Times. These were people who had some notion of the public interest, even if it might not be the one, certainly not the ones that I have. Whereas the asset stripping that's gone on, most spectacularly in the United States, but in much of the Anglo world, of media entities has been undertaken by people much more enthralled to enthralled to stock market motion. And I'm interested in your talking a bit about that, but with particular reference to music journalism, because it seems to me this is one of the areas that has really suffered. I can remember the excitement in London when the New Musical Express or Melody Maker would become available on a weekly basis or whatever it was. And people rushing out with their elbows out to read, you know, people I no longer would want to read like Julie Birchall. But how significant that was. And as I say, you were part of that world. And it seems to me that that world has really been transformed. So long question. But if you've got some thoughts on that, they would be greatly appreciated. Well, what's uh, this is going to sound a bit glib, but what's better than music? And what's better than good music? In terms of in terms of reaching the the totalizing sort of sense of of what we are as human and what we are as as sentient beings, I grew up in a very musical family, of course, mostly around not rock and roll, but orchestral music and church music. But it was on all the time, and it was a, a deeply sensuous and uh, enriching environment. Uh, so I'm I'm a bit of a sucker for for good music. I'm currently putting together a book, writing a book on Rai Kuda, uh, who is a, an important kind of person in terms of not only capturing what might have been erased in the past from uh, minority music and black music in his earlier career, but also being deeply, deeply uh, engaged in uh, a politicised kind of uh, music and, and storytelling about the role of music yeah. in society. But uh, apropos your question, certainly the idea of rushing out to buy this week or last week's NME or Melody Maker or in Australia it was uh, Ram or uh, some some other, you know, there was this terrible thing called Rolling Stone, which was, in fact, I worked for them for a while, uh, an Australian version of Rolling Stone. And it was quite, it was quite fun uh, in some respects in, in the sense in which, you know, we we were able to cover and and have some expression about the nature of music in society, particularly rock and roll, and its unique you know, national formations. We used to think about the Australian sound. That largely, I agree with you. That largely has died away. That the excitement of the sort of Lester Bangs notion of I am living the lifestyle of a fully emancipated human being in a kind of rich aesthetic cultural world of my of my youthful peers doesn't seem to be much around anymore i wouldn't i mean i, I put lester bangs in the same sort of category as Raina Werner Fassbinder, uh one of my heroes in terms of the capacity to actually turn the camera on or to put the pen to paper and write this remarkable flow of passion or depict and represent a, a remarkable flow of passion within either US or New York society or in, in around Berlin and Germany in, in Fassbinder's case. And the idea that of that kind of immediacy through journalism and through reportage is hard to 
is hard to see now. I, I don't see it in. I don't see it fundamentally, and it's a it's a deeply missing link. But again, we're stuck with the contradiction here, aren't we? That there are so many different avenues for music, and it has been corporatized, and yet there are there are wonderful examples of all manner of music. My son is has a band. It's called the Sonic Rings. They're based in Denver. They've just released a, a lovely concept album that he put together, and it's it's available for free on Bandcamp. You know, doesn't no he? I sent him twenty dollars for it. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not sure he'll make much more than that. But you know, Aiden's a wonderful musician. Uh, I'm proud of him because he's my son. But he he will receive no no uh, publicity, no airplay anywhere in the world probably. But his his music is there, and he and his bandmates have have produced a beautiful album. What are we what are we to do with that sort of thing? How do we make sense of that in terms of this kind of interest that we have? around how the culture works and how journalism works. You know, Universal Music recently withdrew the rights for people to uh, use their music on TikTok, right, because people weren't playing by the rules. And the rules were that Universal Music wanted to guarantee that the rights that they held, that as they put it, their musicians held, uh, weren't being treated with uh, respect, as it were, and Universal Music said, oh, oh, you know, we're not going to let you, we're not going to let you use our music, you naughty people. And so they removed the rights. And you know, this is, as you know, I'm sure TikTok and music is, is a kind of very new formation in terms of the, the way that music operates in those public spaces. But what Universal was about and what the, all the companies are about is working out the maximization of profit of commodification through these mechanisms they don't care that it's only 15 seconds or 30 seconds of music they, they really don't care so much about the music as much as such uh, they care about how to make make money from it uh, and this has always been the case so uh, at once at one remove if you like toby the industry has not changed it is more uh, vicious and extractive than it's ever been uh, you know you can't make you won't be paid for anything on, I think it's Spotify, unless you have a thousand downloads. And there are hundreds of musicians who, uh, you know, will never receive a penny. But there are some who receive tens of millions of dollars. And this is, a, you know, this is just a reproducing the the system of extraction where those who have something like popularity have vast amounts of resources directed at them and they become representative. Musicians become representatives of the 1%, as it were, or the less than 1%, and there's a very small number of them. And the 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 left the rest of them basically left uh, high and dry without the capacity to make a living. Can I just return, having said that, to the question of cultural studies and even political economy, mm. which which is something we should talk about uh, not we, you and I, so much as ge in general in the academy, and that is what are we doing educating tens of thousands of students for careers in filmmaking, the music industry, creative industries generally, when we have a system where there is almost no ability for those young people to take their wonderful creativity and find audiences. Right? What happens with that? What What sort of cynicism is there? Uh, in this exercise, and you know, the universities have some explaining to do in terms of not 
of, of taking their tuition fees or taking the tuition from students, offering them the world, offering them, you know, some sort of insights to Hollywood and conveniently forgetting to tell them this is one of the most extractive, vicious, demeaning industries uh, imaginable. And there are a few journalists, it seems to me, who will um, talk about that and, and go there. So it's 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 certainly certainly important to recognise that, that, that the idea of the of the critic, if you like, has somewhat evaporated. It's been replaced by something that's not particularly uh, uh, valuable to me, which is you know, platforms, social media platforms like TikTok. But you know, I don't, I, I don't know uh, what to say about what the role of the music journalist is, but certainly the role of the music critic, like the poet, should never go away should never be considered irrelevant. You mentioned Lester Bangs. I think Cream was the magazine that he was associated with. And, of course, both he and Fassbinder died very young through the kind of aesthetic excess, if you like, that you were referencing. I wonder if you could talk a wee bit about that, because they seem well, like they're heroic figures to you as part of your apostasy of your upbringing. Yes, well, they were, and I suppose they were they were kind of gatekeepers that I, that opened the gate, as opposed to keep it closed. I opened the gate to say this is this is a, this is an aesthetic world, uh, mm. a world of uh, of of massive new sensibilities uh, associated with music or with culture, and with representations of culture, and that they uh, engaged in excessive use of mind altering substances was part of what they thought of as their embodiment of the, of both the lifestyle and of freedom. Now, I happen to think that was misplaced and I've never been a user myself in that sense or in, in any sense. Uh, and I've had too many friends who were dead as a result of that. So I have a, a relationship with that as well. I, I, I would argue that the particular moment of the late 60s and through to the probably the, the 80s was a time where there was a sense that in order to be an artist, in order to be uh, deeply engaged in the most creative acts, and maybe it predates this because it also applies to uh, Pollock, the the painter, and some of the painters, uh, what she's done, Basson Quay as well. I mean, the, the idea that one had to engage in excessive uh, self destruction in order to find one's self of course is merely an expression of a kind of individualistic notion that doesn't really take into consideration the obligations that one has to collective interests and mm. it goes back to this sort of larger theme of of how it, how the culture generally is said unless you're a successful individual you're nothing and forget about collective interests and, and we're always living in that contradiction i think so yes uh, being an apostate uh, my mother and i had a had a very bad relationship for a number of years as a result of that, um, but we did reconcile, and and uh, for which we were both uh, very grateful. But one had to one had to recognise that there was a point at which, in the transformation of the culture that went on in the sixties, uh, as a result of you know post Woodstock, the Vietnam War, the resistance to a number of social activities that or political activities that were in imposed on the U.S. population and the world population, largely by the U.S. government, that young people found a moment. But unfortunately, I would have to say, not to be a Puritan at all, but unfortunately they found 
young people found a moment, and for many it was a moment that that also existed through mind-altering drugs that did not manage to contribute to uh, a larger form of political uh, not knowledge production and politicisation. And and that's tragic. That's been tragic. I don't deny people the right to use drugs, but I do den- I do have a very serious concern about the whole idea of of what it means to de- destroy oneself as one sees the uh, if you like the tragedies and the and the injustices of the world around you and you know managing that while also engaging in very selfish behavior so it's it's a fascinating fascinating topic that's for sure this is one of the areas where i think political economy is neglected and a bit neglectful Every now and then, The Guardian and its ilk will print a supposedly confessional story about a cocaine user in the global north saying, I started out just doing it every occasional moment in a party. Then it was every Friday night. Then it was every day. He took over my life. I read this and I get quite angry. Uh, I think uh, I don't care about your body. It is of no interest to me. What you should have cared about and should care about now is the millions of lives destroyed around the globe in in the southern part of the world, geopolitically and economically, that were part of the production line that generated this view, or were victims of the violence associated therewith. And your suffering is nothing compared to Mm. that. No, absolutely right. And it's that capacity, I think, to look at the entire life of the commodity sign, which is something you've encouraged us to do with reference to music, that I think needs applying also to things like drugs. Of course, it's more complicated when sometimes these are made in the global north in laboratories, but by and large, they come from raw materials in the global south and involve the enslavement, the incarceration, and the murder of millions uh, in the name of some notion of having a good time. Or, of course, if you get back to the philosophy of the limit ideas that you were referencing discovering something new about yourself. And that's where I think there's a great contribution to be made in terms of this issue of the life of the commodity sign. And that's one of the things I try to engage my students with. Where did your phone come from? Right. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, what does it you know, mean that now that on Sami territory in Norway and in Sweden, there are these rare earth minerals being uncovered that, Hitherto, China had a very large holding of, by contrast with anywhere else. What does it mean to be to have a new sort of rush to the north in order to populate the north, mm. inverted commas, and mm. to do so in the name of wealth for the Sami people, but also for Swedes and Norwegians, but to make the contribution of de-signifying the world economy? You know, those sorts of things I think students can get quite interested in, but that is not what commercial culture encourages them to do. It's, here's a shiny brand new object. Wouldn't you like to have this? And right. I should say, I, of course, am as susceptible as many people to shiny new objects and marketing. I wouldn't pretend to be otherwise. And I think your warning about the the temptation to go down the path of moral panic is well taken. So I think there... There are lots of contradictions here, but being able to go back to 
tracking the life of the commodity sign, what's its career been, where did it come from, what's it done, where it's been is really important. But of course, part of that is analysing its textuality, its set of meanings, as well as the experience of its use and misuse. So I do think that that's a, there, these are ways in which some kind of marriage, <laughs> I've been pretty unsuccessful in my marriages, so I'm not offering an example here. My, a happy marriage might be achieved between areas that were rather separated. And I just getting back to um, Vincent Mosco, whom you mentioned, one of the remarkable things about him is that he showed a way in his later work in the last 15 or 20 years to combine culturalist approaches and political economic ones, I think in, in a remarkable way that is still to be recognised within cultural studies. But I think people in political economy really got changed and transformed by seeing the way that he could handle meaning as something really important. You know what yeah. I mean? Yes, yeah. I do. And, and he he certainly also represents a counterpoint to the unfortunate trend that was part of the system, if you like, of American cultural studies, which was the sort of denial of political economy in the way in which it connected with uh, culture, and uh, that's not something I want to talk about right now, but it's certainly something that's been unfortunate part of the history of cultural studies in its uh, US formation. And, uh, you know, I think we we may have to recognise that we live with that with that failure, with the limitation to exclude uh, political economy from cultural studies in a way that maybe is just being recuperated more recently, but certainly it was unhelpful. Uh, I, I would also suggest that there's a, you know, there are larger forces that are very well arrayed uh, against uh, the work that we do, and the work that you know the, these forces are are those thing those ones that never stop telling us of the necessity of having or needing to have the if you like, the devices that make our lives livable. But also they are entirely necessary. You cannot live, uh, at least in the in the advanced world, I, and this is increasingly the global south, but you cannot live without a phone. You cannot live without being connected. And the simple practicality of how this manifests itself in everyday life is something that we need to also recognise, that this is not something that the public more generally have been involved in deciding. This is not something that's now even subject to the public interest. It just has happened. And the rug has been pulled out from under many of our feet in terms of the determining nature of this. And, and I know that there's a there has been a relatively interesting, but I think foolish debate about determinism or technological determinism. And I am of the view that many of the people who said, oh, there's no such thing as technological determinism had never driven on the US highway system. Or if they did, they drove with their eyes closed. You cannot get off the highway once you're in a, on it pretty much, right? Once you're, once you're connected to the, to the telephone network or to the internet, you cannot get off it. And if you want to do the whole dropout, you know, and forget about a hippie sort of reinvention, fine, but don't expect to have 
any much any uh, sort of appreciation or participation in the struggles that are that are part of the world that we live in. So you know these are these are important. It seems to me important principles to to come to terms is. Sure, terms and of course, them. at a practical level, if you want to get the gas turned on, or sign out, sign a rental contract, or apply for a job, this is increasingly hard to do absent use of the internet and access. Yeah, to- yeah that's right. So- and and I will say one more thing. I will say one more thing. And that, you know, let's let's not forget the military-industrial complex here. That as long as this takes place, and as long as the United States, let's say the social media platforms, uh, are the dominant platforms, mm-hmm. uh, the US is fine with this, and the US is more than happy to have all of these kinds of uh, platforms uh, moving vast fortunes into the US economy mm-hmm. through their through the ownership of these platforms. If you look at all the major platforms, the fangs as they used to be called, now the now the change it's changed a little bit, but the large uh the technology firms really are, you know, all America all the way. And that's something that has to be a concern. But it's brought us to the moment we're at now where I think, you know, the subservience of Europe and what's it called, Britain. <laughs> to, to US interests is can be read through the lens of the totalizing, and there's that word again, but that totalizing influence of US culture on pretty much everything. And part of our obligation, at least, is to raise questions about, you know, what it means to have a different view. And certainly your work has been valuable in terms of saying the global South cannot be underestimated and it cannot be left. Uh, to its own devices. It should not be left to its own devices. It has to be incorporated into a much more interesting, uh, beautiful set of possibilities, uh, not simply American possibilities. Prof, I had a couple more questions for you, Hmm. and I wanted to throw it open to you to add or subtract anything from what we've discussed. Does that sound okay? Yeah, sure. So my first of my last two questions is, you mentioned earlier creative industries, and one of the issues I've been wrestling with in the last few podcasts I've done is this concept of creative industries and how it relates to the cultural industries and how we should define them, differentiate them, and should we accept the, these ideas of creative city, creative class, creative nation, uh, all this bollocks. Is it real? Is it valuable? And how does it relate to the cultural industries concept? Yeah, good question. I, I, I like I like the I like the the cultural industries. I like the idea of culture. I like the idea, if you like, going back to Raymond Williams, fairly simplistic but valuable notion. If it's either the way that we live, let's explore the way that we live, how it different, how it differs from place to place, location to location, to then what are the artifacts that that particular expression of culture produces, what TV shows, what films, what music. And those two, if you like, simple binaries to me, or maybe not their binaries, but those simple explanations go a long way to explaining what's so beautiful about culture and why we should pay attention to it and why we should study it and why we should promote it in its rich locality. You know, I'm involved in developing, uh, along with my, my darling wife, Deborah, a local community garden. For me, this is just a way of making a, making local culture with people I wouldn't otherwise know. Otherwise, we're just alienated from our neighbours. I live like everybody else in the in the in the damn world, in my in my suburb, in my house. I hardly ever know anybody. 
Boston being Boston, there's very few coffee shops, you know, to go to, very few social spaces and so on. So, you know, this sort of localised localization seems to me to be something valuable. Totally activism, it's just a matter of saying, how am I going to survive in the shithole, right? right, to, right. to quote Donald Trump. I'm reluctant to, to quote Donald Trump, but I just did. The creative industries side of it is... Uh, has and is has been and is problematic because it simply engages a sort of with a pragmatism for how to engage with those very large companies that dominate the global economy and the and the very large industries. I don't think this this has been resolved, frankly, uh, outside of the United States. It can't be resolved because largely your everybody is stuck with, as I said, these very large platforms. Uh, you know. Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, uh, Facebook, or it's not really, Meta is Facebook. Uh, and, and you know, these sort of companies are so dominant at such a large level, and Google, of course, that it's it's almost impossible to imagine how you can operate outside that. Now, you know, I, I feel some, some responsibility for this. I was involved in developing, you know, the internet policy for the Victorian government and help the Australian government do it. I promoted, you know, bringing all these companies to to Melbourne uh, from within the Department of State Development back in the mid mid to late nineties. Uh, I was involved with the Mexican government. You know, when I first went to went to Mexico as a consultant in two thousand or nineteen ninety nine two thousand, there were we estimated that there were thirty million people. In, in a population of about 110 million people at the time, 30 million people in Mexico had never made a phone call. Now, Toby, 24 years later, and we could say probably by 20 years later, 98% of the Mexican population has a, has a cell phone and probably a smartphone. There's your creative industries, in a sense, right? the industrial formation. The massive companies like AT and T and well, you know, Telefonica from Spain, but all, we brought them in, and also um, uh, the large Mexican companies and Carlos Slim and so on, all those sort of people. And you think, well, what you know, what what did we do? What did, was this the right thing to do? You know, how how is this sort of notion of bringing creativity, bring bringing mm-hmm. communication into these some of these beautiful, quite traditional cultures positive i don't know i, I you know, the, the jury should stay out on this and it, and it emerged these ideas emerged you know in 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 australia in the in the 70s and 80s with the the idea of what 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 is the appropriate form of development for aboriginal people not determined by people by white dudes like me and you but by the aboriginal people themselves what was the best way for them to live why wasn't it why wasn't it possible for them to to live in the desert living on kangaroos and grasses and various other th- sorts of things mm. what's wrong with that traditional way of life but no and now of course they're all caught up in the mining industry and getting intellectual property rights and blah 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 and you know these some of these questions have not been adequately addressed within the creative industries field oh. which i think has been a an appalling appallingly uh, unintelligent uh, promoter of uh, advanced communication technologies following the, the neoliberal movement of the of the 1990s and 2000s 
I have to say that I've spent a bit of time in China and I'm a very strong proponent of managed economies. And whether it's uh, democratic socialism, social democracy at a, <laughs> at a very low level, but quite removed from the communist horizon like it is in China, but the great advances that were done in, that were made in the United Kingdom, right? Through the Labour Party, through social democracy and in Western Europe. Uh, you know, you shouldn't, we shouldn't deny those processes in the transformation of giving, giving resources to human beings. Uh, you know, the British Film Institute and the BBC and these wonderful public utilities and public facilities. What's happened? I'm sorry this is rambling a little bit. What's happened? No, not is at all. That, it's very germane, I think. What's happened is that what, what have been the public utilities, such as in, in, the, in the British case, the BBC and the National Health and uh, maybe uh, a couple of others, uh, have been you know, generally, and this is the same in Australia with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the same in Canada with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, have all been sort of subjected to this creative industries hoo-ha, which is how do we make commodities out of this? How do we make them self-sustaining? How do we remove the sort of public from this because, well, we believe in the market? A lot of it's just bullshit, but it's transformed those resources as public resources and I think in some cases there may be better examples in Western Europe where there are public broadcasters or as as um, uh, as we as we might say public service broadcasters and public service broadcasters have a very important role and creative industry people particularly from the United States but also people in I would say in the UK and Western Europe who have completely fallen into the American way of thinking can't even conceive of this sort of stuff anymore. That's my view. And so they're, they're just, I mean, I don't like the, I don't particularly appreciate the term dumbing down, but they don't have a, a framework that thinks publicly. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must say, however, that there are beautiful political formations in Europe, particularly in France, and I guess there has been in Greece and there has been in Spain, of the left. Uh, I, you know, I was in, had the good fortune to be in Paris last May or April and was able to march down the, the street with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Parisians, uh, including, you know, members of the French Communist Party who were protesting the proposed changes to uh, retirement laws in, in France. There are very large parties who are engaged, political parties of the left, communist, socialist, left movements in some places in Europe, particularly in France, who insist that the public has to be taken seriously. I don't know if those if creative industries people ever talk to those people, ever advise them, ever work as consultants for them. Certainly, I wouldn't expect that in the United States. In the United States, I don't think the... Um, Creative industries folk know their left hand from their right hand, but that's being unnecessarily disrespectful and rude to them. So I apologise in advance for any 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 uh, offence they may take. But I, but I think I think let me let me also say, Toby, that one of the great limitations of this wonderful country of the United States is that it does not know something. It does not know stuff. 
For example, it does not have the experience at a mass or popular level of social democracy. It just doesn't. I mean, it ha- what, what federal or even state government in the United States has ever been a social democratic or democratic socialist government? There might have been something, I think, in Kansas in the 30s, you know, with communists involved in the in the movement, and there was Dallas Smythe and his work in the FCC, and in in fact followed by Bill Melody doing interesting economics about the public interest. But these were not the these sort of political formations that were informed by progressive political theory that impacted the emergence of culture and the respect for uh, popular culture generally. So that's that's part of the problem that the United States faces that I think is is underestimated in terms of uh, how creative industries operate because they don't that generally speaking the, the the models for how to how to move creative industries have shunted if if they ever had them they've shunted aside the idea of the public purse of progressive taxation and of using public funds to represent uh, you know, the broadest possible range of people. Of course, it's also commercialised, so how can you do anything else? Uh, culture, culture, culture survives anyway, uh, and I suppose for us who are interested in, in cultural industries, uh, what we can do, and there's an old, old, I'm not sure if he's still with us, but his name is John Flouse. And he was a film critic who did a film buffs forecast every Saturday afternoon on three triple R in Melbourne in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, I had a show on that radio station too. And John Flouse was both an actor and a, a remarkable sort of organic intellectual who knew a lot about stuff. And, and once he said a, a simple thing, which has always stuck with me, he said many, many profound things, but he said a simple thing. He says, when these movies come out in the, in the picture theatre, Go and see them because it provides the signal that you are prepared to support this kind of culture. And it's true. You know, get off the couch and go and watch a movie about whatever might be an unusual, uh, progressive, politically inclined piece of theatre. Don't go and see those ridiculous superhero things. Don't give those people your money. Make these strategic decisions about the way in which you and your friends spend your money, you know. And, and in some ways, this is this is a, a something that that hasn't necessarily been very well articulated within uh, progressive movements. Uh, perhaps perhaps I missed the I missed the memo on that, but I think that will be a way of of also thinking about you know how we get the allocate the, the fundamental question of economics, right? Is the allocation of resources? How do we get the allocation of resources into the public spaces, and how do we get them? away from the creative industries, which are often uh, nothing more than a way of subsidising already extremely wealthy companies. That's a long, long, long rave, isn't it? John Flaus, by the way, can be seen in a series of telemovies, I guess we might call them, called Jack Irish. Yes, yes. Guy Pearce in them, and that would be one way in which listeners outside Australia could encounter his acting, and he's terrific in that. He plays a barfly in a very typical proletarian Melbourne pub. Uh, so, Prof, my last question before throwing things over to you, should you want to add or subtract anything, is this. So imagine there's a young 
person at Boston College 2021, maybe entering their senior year or perhaps finishing it, they come and knock on your door and they say, I've really enjoyed your classes despite your funny accent. And I'm wondering what I should do next. Should I go to grad school and run up more debt and study political economy and cultural studies and all these other cool things? Should I not go to grad school but go to professional school and run up more debt? Should I go out and march on the streets? Prof, what do I do? I'm I'm a parent and I have three children. And so I've been through this at a very personal level as to assisting them with their decision making. So it's not so abstract as mm-hmm. to sure. the, the child or uh, the student who comes to me with that kind of advice. I, t- I tend to take this kind of advice on a on a you know one on one basis as is you know what are what are the kinds of capacities that the student has what are the kinds of passions and resources that they have to pursue their best uh, their best long term objectives but I remember certainly one time I know I was asked by a student this is quite a long time ago whether she she was just about to graduate whether she should uh, take a job in the CIA. And I knew the answer to that that uh, question, and that is that once you enter that world, you never get out of it, and you need to think deep and hard about what kind of work you'll be doing and who you'll be working for. So that was a simple one. The more di- the more difficult one uh, is is uh, to advise a student to be to to the best of their ability. You know, stay engaged. Don't forget what they've read. Don't forget what they've discussed, and to think of themselves as a citizen in the in the you know traditional, if you like, traditional Platonic <laughs> uh, Grecian sense of citizenship, of being a participant in the world, of do of not just uh, being an uncritical consumer. One of the great challenges that we have as academics, but as human beings, is, and you mentioned this before the endless attraction of the of the shiny objects and the enormous, the billions of dollars that goes into telling us that we need more shiny objects. That the, you know, and you've done wonderful work on this sort of questions of consumption, consumer culture, and the impact on the environment. And to be, to be critical consumers, that is, in fact, to decommodify oneself, to think about how one can decommodify, to think about how one can be something different, this is not always easy, particularly at exclusive colleges like the one I work in. I, frankly, the people who, the students who are now coming to, to Boston College are, are now from some of the most wealthy fragments of society. This is a great success for the Jesuits. You know, Boston College started as a college for poor Irish boys in Boston who couldn't get a job, or sorry, who couldn't get an education. But of course, they left in the 1850s, 60s, and by the 1880s, the Jesuits had set up a little, a little outfit in Boston to educate the boys. Now, unfortunately, it didn't apply to my grandmother, who also came uh, to Boston in 1904. But nevertheless, BC did well, and it's it's in the in the great tradition of the Jesuits. It's continued to um, 
look after its graduates and now has what how many uh, not not necessarily graduates of Boston College but je- the products of Jesuit education on the Supreme Court in Wall Street and the fra- and the number of students at Boston College from extremely wealthy com- uh, families and you know I'm talking a billionaire class is quite extraordinary and so to advise those students is very difficult because they really are just there to, as far as I can see, to uh, impress their parents, do what is required of them, and then go back to their family home in the East Hamptons. That's depressing. And where education is merely a signifier of status and of uh, you know the next step in life, uh, it's a loss. It, Sorry to say, it's a lost cause. Maybe there are exceptions, but not much. So it's very difficult to know how to advise people apart from along this line of consumption and along the line of, you know, don't be a mindless consumer, be a, be a, be a mindful citizen and you know, look for opportunities to contribute and participate in the world. And, you know, this, this, is, this I think, is probably going to be forced upon them and has been forced upon many students anyway, because they, you know, suffer fairly extreme forms of pressure from either finding a job, finding a career path associated with that job, and then carrying debt. And remember, this uh, in the last few months since the end of 2023, tens of thousands of computer scientists have been laid off at Google, at Facebook, at Amazon, everywhere else. So the idea of having a high-paying technical job doesn't help anymore, right? And it's not going to help. If you're interested in this and if readers haven't seen this, there's a nice article in the Financial Times from last week last week by Corey Doctorow about his concept of enshitification. Enshitification or enshitification is the idea that the whole thing has gone to shit <laughs> and that, you know, for for the idea of the aspirations of what we thought we might achieve, through our communication technologies or through public communication technologies, which is what the internet initially was, is no longer the case. And we are in a a particularly troubling moment where everything is diminished. How to advise students in that environment is to, is to, you know, encourage them to maintain their humanity, encourage them to think about others, encourage them to, as I teach, uh, think about the concepts of what in Catholic social teaching is called the common good, right? What is the common good? And to use that as a lever to say, how does that relate to the public interest? I always associate my my teaching with those kinds of principles, and it's something that I enjoy doing. And, and I hope that the students find some way of, of being better citizens. And I'll finish on this point, and that is to say that what I, I also teach ethics. And I say that one thing I, at the start of the courses, I say one thing I never want to see is any of you on the front page of the New York Times doing a perp walk. Because you've forgotten what we talked about in this class. <laughs> it's possible. But, you know, the idea that we can be better people and that we can contribute to, uh, you know, in the final analysis, to overthrowing this appalling system of capitalism, just infecting and poisoning the world. Uh, how we go about that is going to come from many different directions, uh, from many different locations. And, uh, you know, I think there's an increasing need and an increasing hunger for you know this idea of making making a world that's very different 
And I hope that that's something that I can see Boston College uh, graduates doing, but not only Boston College. I'm going to talk to more, all sorts of places. And what's our, our, our humble ambition as, as academics surely should be you know, to see our students engaged in serving the interests of others and uh, producing a better world. And finally, Prof M, are there things you'd like to add that we haven't already touched upon or where you want to think about them somewhat further? I mentioned China before, and I would like to say that I would encourage people to pay attention to the resources that are available about China. Uh, I, I, I know that this is often a controversial, difficult topic for many people, and there are a vast array of views about this remarkable country. But I, as a um, as a communications researcher, and as someone who cares deeply about a, another better world, the Chinese seem to me to be doing things that are, are remarkable and uh, should we should know about. And this is simply the knowledge question. People should know. They shouldn't read the New York Times for the latest update on the, on China. They shouldn't read or rely on CNN or any of the other major out, outlets. Well, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. The enormous resources put towards anti-China and anti-communist efforts are truly remarkable. And it's shocking to me how easily or readily people fall into the, the whole idea of, well, it's just, uh, you know, somehow or other an old-style authoritarian government without having any appreciation of the sort of cultural or historical developments within that country and what's been achieved. And certainly I would say that if anybody ever has the opportunity to go to China to do so and to see for yourself what has been achieved within the realms of, within the within the framework of kind of socialist objectives, and to to meet people and to talk to people in a in an open and friendly way, and to be clear about the fact that we as Westerners and and in our privilege are so ignorant, not only of China but of the global South, and that we we need a hell of a lot more humility, and a, a considerable effort towards gaining knowledge about China that is not simply filtered through the Western liberal democratic lens. It takes effort. It takes time, but I would sit, I would like to encourage people to do that because, you know, the world the world is changing. Understand multipolarity. Understand that this is that the world is going to be a very different place, and it's not going to be a Chinese place, but it's not going to be an American place either, and it's going to be a place that that's going to look look and feel different for our children, and certainly. Uh, hopefully the world will survive long enough to uh, you know, be a, be better, but with more understanding as a result of the efforts that people put in. Uh, and I say this, Toby, because it's it's surprising to me how how vicious and ignorant many people are in their discussions of of uh, China or the development of the pardon me of the global South and. You know, I think we I think we need to go back to the idea, as I said, going back in terms of this interview, uh, of you know our relationship to knowledge. You know, what do we know? What's communication? What's communication helping us to know, to know better, to critique, to engage with more fully, and not just reproduce the, you know, the old tropes of Western civilization being superior, and and without any any really much mindfulness 
of, of how that's expressed. Total uncritical thinking, if you ask me, uh, on, on the part of many of our colleagues. And it, it's been a, a great disappointment uh, to me to see and hear some people who just rail against uh, you know what the Chinese do with, uh, but you know the, there may have been. I was at a conference. I won't name it, but I was at a conference not long ago, and uh, a person who who I would have thought of as being part of the sort of field in which or work, area that we work in uh, may as well have been reading a, a speech written by the U.S. State Department. It was really shocking, and and yet it was it was uh, also uh, just an expression of ignorance and prejudice. And I, I think we, we have some obligations here. As Foucault said, you know, we have ethical obligations. And what are our ethical obligations? Well, at least to get some knowledge and, and, and deploy that knowledge. Many thanks. Professor Green, it was great chatting to you, and I deeply appreciate it. I appreciate you asking me. Thank you, Toby. Be well, and I look forward to catching up some other time.